The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you clothe us in your righteousness that we might be fit to stand before the king that we might be welcomed to the feast, that we might be readied for salvation. For the glory of your name, amen. Please be seated. So last Sunday we began a new series of sermons called Consider Jesus. Between now and Christmas we're taking a look at the first eight chapters of the New Testament book of Hebrews. Now we don't know who wrote Hebrews and we're not even sure exactly what Hebrews is. A letter, an essay, a sermon transcript, it's hard to be sure. What we do know is that Hebrews turns the spotlight onto Jesus, encouraging us to take a careful look at him from every conceivable angle, and then to see the world through him. Last week, Caleb kicked things off with those remarkable first four verses. The author wastes no time with introductions or salutations. He jumps straight into the most important news of all time. Jesus, he says, is the full and final word of God. The culmination of all that God had promised in the ages before. He explains that Jesus is God himself, one with the Father from before all time. And he makes clear that Jesus now reigns over all things, having died and risen to purify us from our sins. So Hebrews begins with this incredible sequence of affirmations in verses 1 to 4. That was last week. Verses 5 to 14 then provide us with an exposition of the Old Testament that is designed to back up and expand on the affirmations of the first four verses. Then, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the author gives an exhortation to his audience based on what he said. So last week, Caleb took us through the opening affirmations of this letter, 1, 1 to 4, Today we're going to look at the biblical exposition that backs them up and then the exhortation 
that results. So I hope you'll turn to page 1001 in the Red Bibles so that you can follow along as we consider God's Word together. Page 1001. In verse 4 of chapter 1, the author claims that Jesus is greater than the angels. We don't know why exactly this was so important for him to say. Most likely it has something to do with his audience. We know that these are Jewish Christians with a deep knowledge of what we now call the Old Testament. They believed that those works had in some way been revealed by angels to God's chosen scribes, Moses, David, and the prophets. There's a chance that some members of the original audience of Hebrews thought that Jesus was just a really great angel, a messenger from God. And the author wants to set the record straight. Jesus is not an angel. He isn't even the greatest angel. He is the eternal son of the living God. In order to prove his point, he turns our attention to a sequence of verses from the Old Testament. In verses 5 to 9, he shows that because Jesus is the Son of God, he's worthy of worship and therefore greater than the angels. So verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions." In the Old Testament, angels are sometimes referred to as sons of God. So it's understandable that there might be some confusion among Jewish believers in Jesus about the nature of his sonship. Is he just a great angel? Is he one of many sons? Or is there something unique about him? The author of Hebrews wants us to know that while angels may have been described as sons of God, Jesus is the eternal son of God. Angels were never meant to be worshipped. Jesus is because he is God's one and only son. In verse 10, our author expands his portrait of Jesus. Not only is Jesus the son of God worthy of worship, he's actually, actually the creator of all things who will one day create again. So we, we read, you Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. That is an astonishing claim. While angels are creatures, Jesus is the creator who will one day recreate. He was before all time and continues eternally. Though the author offers little explanation of what the change from original creation to new creation will look like, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that in this new creation, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ will rise with him to new life without sin or death or brokenness of any kind, while those who have rejected Christ will be separated from him and his good creation forever. But the author's not finished comparing Jesus to the angels. 
in verses 13 and 14. He explains that Jesus is greater than the angels because he has conquered God's enemies. He writes, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? When Jesus rose from the grave, he conquered death. He robbed Satan of the one thing that he could hold over humanity. Though Satan has, been, has not been fully vanquished, he has been defeated. He and all the forces of evil in this world are under the feet of Jesus. Unlike Jesus, angels aren't conquerors, they're servants. He rules, they serve. Angels serve not just God, but human beings for the sake of our salvation. The author leaves us with no doubt Jesus is greater than the angels. Well, in this rapid fire sequence from verse 5 to verse 14, the author quotes from Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, Deuteronomy 32, and then Psalms 104, 45, 102, 110, and 8. That's a lot of different Old Testament texts. And we are wise to ask, what does this teach us about how we're supposed to read the Old Testament? So you go back and read Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, and Deuteronomy 32, and it is not at all clear that these passages are prophecies about a future Messiah. 2 Samuel 7 is God's promise to David that he will always have a king on the throne. Psalm 2 seems to be about the Davidic king in Israel and God's reign over his people. Deuteronomy 32 is about Yahweh's jealous love for Israel and the fact that all nations and every creature will one day bow before him. The other Psalms quoted, they're all about Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. So what are we to make of this reading, this way of reading the Old Testament? Is the author of Hebrews making it about Jesus when it really isn't? Is he misusing the text? You know, many of us approach the Old Testament with one of several misconceptions. Some think of the Old Testament as a book of laws sprinkled with prophecies about a Messiah. Because the prophecies have been fulfilled in Jesus, the laws are now obsolete. So we focus on what we learn in the New Testament, and we don't bother all that much with the Old. Others of us approach the Old Testament like it's a mine filled with gems, where we go digging for blessings and promises and prayers that we then remove from the bedrock and wrench out of context for our own personal use. So we collect favorite verses for comfort and inspiration without trying to understand their place in the story that's being told. Yes, the Old Testament has laws that are no longer part of our life together because of what Jesus has accomplished. Yes, the Old Testament is full of prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. Yes, there are prayers and blessings and words of wisdom that are comforting and relevant to us today, but the Old Testament is so much more than this. Though it is made up of multiple books written by a multitude of authors over many centuries, it tells a single story. And that is the story of God's love for the world that he created, 
and of God's plan for the ultimate restoration of all things. That story, that story reaches its climax in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. So have you ever read a really good mystery novel where you had no idea what was going to happen in the end? And after the surprise, you went back through the book and you found all of the clues so deftly hidden by the author? Well, in many ways, this is how the Old Testament works. We cannot understand who Jesus is and what he accomplishes without the Old Testament setting the stage and telling the story. But we only really understand the Old Testament when we know that Jesus is the climax of the story that it's telling. You can't understand who Jesus is without understanding the Old Testament. Likewise, you can't understand the Old Testament as it is meant to be understood without knowing that Jesus is the climax of the story. It was always, ultimately, about Jesus. So when the author of Hebrews says back in verses 1 and 2, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, he's not saying that Jesus is just the most recent revelation. He's saying that Jesus gets the final word. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, and everything makes sense only in and through Jesus. So... Is it right for the author of Hebrews to read all of these psalms written about Yahweh as if they describe Jesus? Well, the answer is yes. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he demonstrated that he was God. And because he's God, those things written about God in the Old Testament apply equally to Jesus. Is the author of Hebrews allowed to turn God's promise to David that he'll always have a son on the throne into a promise about Jesus? Yes. Because Jesus is the son who reigns eternally on the throne of David. It may not be what David thought would happen, but it is how God fulfilled his promise. So we reread these ancient texts through the lens of who we know Jesus to be. The authors of what we now call the New Testament didn't force the Old Testament to work the way they wanted it to so that they could make sense of Jesus. What happened was Jesus forced them to reread the Old Testament in light of him because they'd seen him killed on a cross, rise from the dead, and prove that he was God. Chapter 1, it began with a series of affirmations about Jesus. It continued with an exposition of the Old Testament, demonstrating that he's the Son of God, worthy of worship. He is creator and new creator. He is Lord and conqueror. Now in chapter 2, we're given an exhortation. And there we are told what is at stake and what we must do as a result. So verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. 
For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What's at stake in these claims about Jesus is life and death. The Old Testament message declared by God through his angels was reliable and trustworthy. There is a penalty for sin. Now through his son, salvation has been given. And that salvation has been attested by eyewitnesses, undeniable miracles, and extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit. It mustn't be neglected. Because apart from faith in Jesus Christ, we suffer the penalty of our sins, which is death and separation from God. That was the stark and sobering truth of our gospel reading from Matthew. What we're supposed to do about this is disarmingly straightforward. Verse 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. When I was in middle school, I used to go sailing on the Chesapeake Bay with my friend Daniel Salisbury. His father would take us out for a day or two and we would explore the bay anchoring for the night in little inlets sleeping on the boat. It was incredible. One of the early lessons I learned on those sailing trips was how important it is to set anchors before you settle in for the night. We would set one from the bow and one from the stern, making sure that as the boat rode the gentle current, the lines went taut and the anchors held fast. So the Chesapeake Bay was a pretty safe place to sail, but the last thing you wanted was to come loose in the middle of the night while you were sleeping and drift into a busy shipping lane. Human beings are prone to drifting. We are prone to drifting. The currents of our culture and of our own sinful nature, they're strong. They pull us off course. Sometimes so quickly you lose your breath. Sometimes so slowly you barely perceive any movement at all. Regardless of the force, the result is the same. We drift into busy shipping lanes where our faith gets crushed. So what do we do? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us, pay much closer attention to what we have heard. In other words, to Jesus Christ and the good news of our salvation. Now I wonder, I wonder if you've ever thought of attention as a commodity. Now, you may think about time in this way because time is money after all, but what about your attention? I think it's worth considering because more than anything else in our digital age, what is bought and sold is our attention. Everything about the internet, everything about the internet is designed to capture your attention for five more seconds. 
The idea is that you'll see one more advertisement. You'll feel one more pang of longing for something that you do not need and cannot afford and that you will buy it anyway. The ultimate goal is to sell you something. But the immediate goal is to capture your attention. The commodity that is being traded is your attentiveness and you never earn a penny on it. The glittering pixels of our digital age are designed to draw our eyes ever onward, never resting, always seeking the next thing. And that's how we are being trained to live, not just online, but offline as well. So our phones and our computers, they're tools, but they aren't merely tools, are they? They're gateways. They're gateways to a digital world that has become for us a spiritual, social, and psychological habitat. Now, habitats shape us. They force adaptive behavior. They demand a certain perspective. People who live in deserts are completely different from people who live in rainforests. And the most powerful thing about a habitat is that once you get used to it, you barely notice it. Our online habitat is training us to be constantly distracted, to scroll and to swipe when we're bored, to refresh needlessly and repeatedly. And what this creates in us is a constant sense of expectation and an endless appetite for the next thing. So more than ever in the history of humanity, we are primed for distraction. And you know what this does to you. It makes you restless, anxious, and unhappy. And this has enormous spiritual consequences. Talbot Brewer is a philosopher at the University of Virginia. And he wrote a fascinating article about attention this past summer. He writes this, It is hard to think of any other commodity that is as crucial as attention to the tenor of our daily lives. When attention is depleted, there can be no heightened passion, no true friendship, no love. Without attention, we are not genuinely available to anyone at all, not to our children, not to our work associates, not to the strangers walking past us on the sidewalk. Even our most private deeds unfold at arm's length without the, perfect, the perfecting consummation of enthusiasm. Attention has these enormous powers because it serves as the portal of thinking and acting. No course of activity can so much as suggest itself to us unless our attention is structured by some awareness of its possibility. And no activity fully worthy of a human being can blossom unless it is carried forward and completed by avid attention to the valuable possibilities latent in it. So what are you paying attention to? What are you paying attention to or is your attention simply a commodity to be traded, even stolen, when you're least aware? Paying attention is of crucial importance because when we pay attention, when we pay attention, we move from looking at to seeing through. 
And I want to explain what I mean by that. We can look at Jesus, observe him from a distance and marvel at him, but when you pay attention to him, when you carefully examine the gospel message and all that goes with it, when you come to understand that Jesus is greater than the angels because he is the eternal son of God, creator, conqueror, and Lord, then you learn not just to look at him, you learn to see the world through him. That's what happened to cause the author of Hebrews to reread the Old Testament as a story about Jesus. When we pay attention to the good news of God and Jesus Christ, we move beyond looking at Jesus to seeing everything in light of him. We understand the world as it truly is and we learn to inhabit it as we were intended to. I want to end with an invitation and an application. The invitation is this. Pay attention to how you pay attention this week. Most of us keep an eye on how we spend our money and how we spend our time. This week, keep an eye on how you spend your attention. You will be shocked. Are you easily distracted? When, how, why? What contexts or practices allow you to attend to what is most important? What can you do to save your attention so you can spend it on what really matters? That's the invitation. The application is this. Take time each day to set your anchors. Take time each day to set your anchors. It can be morning, noon, night, or all three. Set aside at least 15 minutes to attend to Jesus, to read your Bible, to pray, to worship the risen Lord. I actually need, I need a full hour to do this. 15 minutes won't cut it. I need a full hour, which I take first thing in the morning. I do not look at my phone for the first hour and a half of the day because my attention is that valuable. This time of setting anchors, it's not primarily meant to be about gaining Bible knowledge, although over the years you will. This time is more about setting course. It's about drawing your attention back to the risen Son of God, setting aside distraction, and learning to see the world through the truths of what we believe. You can't get there without paying attention. Constant distraction leads to drift, which puts us in the path of destruction. Attending to Jesus Christ, however, leads to life eternal and life abundant here and now. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says, we must pay much closer attention to, that, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are constantly distracted. We are prone to drifting. Would you capture our attention? 
May we learn not just to look at you, but to see the world through you. To understand the glorious consequences of your life, death, resurrection, and ascension. May we learn to worship you, to follow you, and to attend to you each day of our lives. We pray this for your honor and glory and for our good. Amen.